me get started. Uh, my name is John Mueller. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato and a professor of political science at uh, Ohio State University. Uh, thanks to the conference staff for all their hard work in putting this together. Always done with great effectiveness. Uh, David Hendrickson um, is a political scientist at uh, Connecticut, at uh, um, Colorado College. You know, I get my C's mixed up here. And what we're dealing with today, as you know, his most recent book, Republican Peril, America's Empire, American Empire and the Liberal Tradition. Uh, Hendrickson has been at um, uh, Colorado College since about 1983. He's the author of six or seven books, and uh, we look very much forward to his presentation. I'd also like to introduce Michael Mandelbaum on my left, um, who is a uh, emeritus professor now at the uh, School of, of Advanced uh, international Studies at uh, Johns Hopkins, just down the block here a ways. Um, he is the author of 14 books, so that must mean he's older than David. Um, and um, if you're interested, uh, we also did a book for him almost exactly two years ago on his most recent book called Mission Failure. Uh, and so you could, uh, that's still online if you want to look at it and see if he's changed his mind since that time. I'm sure he'll tell you if he has. Uh, at any rate, uh, we're going to have David talk for about 20 minutes, and then Michael for maybe 10 or 15, uh, and then we'll open it up to, for questions. So would you uh, join me in welcoming David Hendrickson? Uh, thanks very much, John. It's a real pleasure to be here at the Cato Institute. I uh, have followed the output of Cato in their foreign policy uh, and strategy program for many, many years and uh, have a very high regard for not only the old timers like uh, Chris Preble and Ted Carpenter, Doug Bandow, John, uh, but also the, the younger people, John Glazer, Emma Ashford, Ben Friedman, Trevor Thrall. Um, my principal recommendation to you is to put them in your Twitter feed. Uh, you will receive enlightenment. So the great theme of this book is uh, uh, that the Republic is threatened by the empire, uh, or to use the characterization of John Pocock in his uh, review of the historiography of the Roman Republic, uh, liberty has acquired an empire by which it is itself threatened. And that is to say the growth of the national security state, in my view, has distorted the institutions of the Republic, created a dependent class that is uh, dependent upon U.S. enmity with a host of enemies, established a very powerful role in the politics of Washington, D.C., such that it's politically very hazardous to challenge this great interest. Um, you know, it reaches to all 50 states, every congressional district, and uh, has a degree of intensity in terms of American politics that it's very difficult to challenge. You know, the great illustration of this is that Bernie Sanders fairly honest character, is a shill for the F-35. Well, you wouldn't expect that, but that tells the uh, disinterested observer all she needs to know about uh, the power of this establishment. Ben Friedman and Harvey Sapolsky in the recent uh, volume that has, has a lot of Cato people in it, you know, summarize that by pointing to the concentration of benefits and the diffusion of costs uh, that uh, helps sustain that apparatus. Now, I think that that's not only distorting to the institutions of the Republic, but also 
to the liberty of the citizen. And the most compelling example of that is this enormous surveillance apparatus This has been created to the tune of some $75 billion a year. Uh, I don't know that one can say that that's had um, deleterious effects on the liberty of American citizens as of now, but the mere creation of such an apparatus, I think, has chilling implications for the long term. Uh, the very fact that it's not greatly abused at the present moment actually invites its further consolidation, opens the opportunity for future for abuse in the future. All of that bears out the observation of Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists that in order to feel safer, people are willing to accept being less free. Uh, it also puts us at, odd with our, at odds with our commitment to universal human rights. Uh, that's a point that's so often neglected in the domestic discourse with regard to the American surveillance state, but <clears throat> the Universal Declaration on Human Rights uh, other human rights treaties are very emphatic about uh, the importance of individual privacy. And anyone acquainted with the Anglo-American legal tradition will know that uh, the protection of one's personal papers and effects from un unwarranted searches and seizures is a first principle. We violate that as a matter of course uh, in our surveillance apparatus. I think the larger problem or one of the larger problems associated with that, the creation of this very powerful national security state uh, is that it forces us into enmity with a host of foreign powers and creates a kind of permanent institutional interest on behalf of that. And all of that was remarkably uh, prophesied in a, in a way by Joseph Schumpeter in his book, uh, Imperialism and Social Classes, uh, speaking of the Roman policy which pretends to aspire to peace but unerringly generates war, the policy of continual preparation for war, the policy of meddlesome interventionism. There was no corner of the known world where some interest was not alleged to be in danger or under actual attack. If the interests were not Roman, then allies. If, if it were not Roman, they were those of Rome's allies. And if Rome had no allies, then allies would be invented. When it was utterly impossible to contrive such an interest, why then it was the national honor that had been insulted. The fight was always invested with the aura of legality. Rome was always being attacked by evil-minded neighbors, always fighting for a breathing space. The whole world was pervaded by a host of enemies. And Schumpeter's summation was that the key phenomenon was that the war machine created by the wars that required it now created the wars it required I think that's a fairly apt summary of American foreign policy uh, over the last century. Uh, now, the second theme uh, concerns the question of security. And uh, we've clearly sacrificed liberty, distorted our domestic institutions on behalf of an idea of national security. And the crucial question really is whether this apparatus uh, helps ensure American security. And I say that it does not. On the contrary, uh, we have US forces spread throughout Eurasia, from the Baltics, the Ukraine, the Black Sea, all across the greater Middle East, on the 38th parallel in Korea, in the South China Sea. And uh, those are stand continually in danger of some kind of military conflict. Uh, that's true even if the United States has a defensive posture. Now that 
doctrines of preventive war are newly ascendant uh, in this city, uh, the danger is yet more real. So I would liken that military strategy to a, uh, an investment strategy of selling volatility. Uh, that's a great money-making thing to do uh, in you know, 364 days a year. But one day, when volatility spikes, you're wiped out. And um, in effect, you know, we have military doctrines, military strategy that rest upon that threat of escalation dominance in the near abroad of other great powers. And uh, the, uh, just takes one time for that to prove to be very dangerous to the American people. I mean, it's obvious that a war with any one of the major powers that we contend with, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, uh, is a war that both sides would lose. Uh, even if one side lost more than the other, uh, even if it didn't proceed to extremes, which, as Klausowitz said, it's in the nature of war to do. Um, so the breeziness with which that's treated, I think, is truly astounding, given the, uh, uh, the scale of the danger associated with it. A perfect analog to uh, this, the danger of the military strategy is what's happened in cyberspace for 10 to 20 years. The United States has invested far more than any other power in penetrating the internet architecture of other states, breaking into it, trying to find out what they're thinking, uh, figuring out ways to bring down their infrastructure. And we find after all of that effort that we're more insecure than ever. Uh, uh, that that policy of making others insecure actually contributes to a situation in which we're insecure. And uh, that's, a, uh, that's a terrible outcome, I think, for the United States. In effect, we have a kind of Wild West in cyberspace, and the sheriff has been at the head of the cattle wrestlers. Third point I want to address is the question of law uh, and of international law. Uh, we violated that a lot, just did it over the weekend. Um, it seems to me that the most egregious violation is the American adoption of the strategy of overthrow witnessed in Iraq, Libya, Syria, Ukraine, in which the United States has arrogated itself the right to overthrow these governments. Um, these policies have led to uniformly bad consequences kind of vast field of anarchy, huge flows of refugees, doesn't seem to deter their advocates. But I want to speak not simply of the particular political consequences of that policy, but to make a more philosophical point about why international law is important. And I think that we have an idea of that, that you know, we have a set of interests to pursue, then there are these norms that are registered in law. And uh, as John Bolton said, you know, we don't want to pay attention to the UN or to international law because the purpose of that is to restrain us. Well, my point is that if one looks at that historically, at the development of the great norms of international law, such as forbidding aggression or forbidding the overthrow of governments or forbidding preventive war, that they actually embody the lessons of experience and embody the lessons of prudence. There's no contradiction between those, they, 
staying within the law tells you how to exercise prudence. And uh, I think that's often misunderstood by certain realists today, that that is, they will make kind of sneering references to international law uh, and not realize that the commands of the law are in fact substantially the same as those they recommend. So their, their admonitions against, uh, you know, with regard to the disutility of military force, the power of indigenous resistance, the danger of lighting fires that the incendiaries don't know how to put out, the folly of preventive wars, all of those insights are embedded within the traditional law of the uh, subject. So my book is in part a brief for a traditional conception of the law of nations, which has been in very large measure abandoned over the last 20 years on behalf of the notion that the United States has a duty or a right to spread democracy and human rights throughout the world. That was not the traditional law on the subject. And uh, I think the traditional law uh, dedicated to the preservation of peace is superior to the new doctrines that have prevailed. Really, the essential principle of, the international, of international law was the golden rule. It was the principle of reciprocity. Do not that unto others which thou wouldst not have done to thyself, as Hobbes put it in his summation of the law of nature. And I, I think we violate that principle. We violate in our military dispositions, putting forces on the border of our adversaries that we would never accept on our borders. We do it in our surveillance apparatus, do it with regard to uh, military interventions. And in all these areas, the U.S. reserves the right, as Daniel Lazar recently put it, to do unto others what others may do not do unto the U.S. So I think we need to get back to that principle of reciprocity, recover the sources of international law, and take that as a guide to our conduct. And I would uh, particularly like to cite a great declaration of Woodrow Wilson in his great last speech on behalf of the League of Nations in Pueblo, Colorado, just before he collapsed in September 1919 of a massive stroke. Uh, the essential purpose of the League, Wilson held, was the mutual and solemn promise of the nations, quote, that they will never use their power against another for aggression, never impair the territorial integrity of a neighbor, never interfere with the political independence of a neighbor, will abide by the principle that great populations are entitled to determine their own destiny, and that no matter what differences arise amongst them, they will never resort to war without first having submitted the matter to arbitration or to the consideration of the council. Now, the United States has made it its business over the last 20 years to violate every one of those precepts. And uh, that makes that foreign policy very un-Wilsonian in fundamental thrust and purpose. So that leads me to my fourth point, point regarding liberalism. I think what is called the liberal world order is in fact very illiberal in crucial respects. Historically, liberalism taught a program of peace was always predicated on peace. Its promise was trying to find a way around force. The war system was its deadly enemy, and I think that that's borne out by consideration of the early liberals, people like Montesquieu and Constant and Adam Smith, the American founders. Um, and it's very sad that today these animating ideas of the uh, liberal tradition are given almost no voice in our public rhetoric. Today, the most liberal, along with the most conservative 
compete in pouring out invective against external enemies. They've made their peace with the national security state. So instead of conceding the equality of national and political rights to others, as liberalism once did, the United States adopts towards its adversaries an uncompromisingly hostile attitude. One group of states is placed outside the human race, considered officially as terrorists. Syria and Iran today, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya yesterday. Another group of states, America's traditional rivals, Russia and China, are portrayed as aggressive authoritarians who can only be tamed in their near abroad by the threat of overwhelming force. The only thing they understand is force and the often repeated, though insulting, mantra. The widespread domestic portrayal of them in essentialist demonizing terms leads directly to the conclusion that no rules can be maintained with them, freeing the hegemon from any principled restraint and allowing it to engage with a good conscience in the arts of force and fraud. I think that that way of reasoning, which is pervasive in our security establishment, uh, is the very height of illiberality. Fifth point uh, is the uh, sheer unaffordability of this position over the long run. You know, our so-called national security budget comes in at over a trillion dollars a year. I know the official figures say 700 billion a year, um, but you know, if you add in payments to veterans, to the State Department, to Homeland Security, towed up the interest on the debt, uh, taking the share of national security expenditures over the last generation. You know, it's well over a trillion. It's not the 3.5% of GDP often touted. It's more like 6% of GDP. And of course, we now have an economic program that uh, forecasts uh, trillion dollar deficits for as far as the eye can see, you know, pushing uh, 100% debt-to-GDP ratios. Um, this all occurs at a time when the dispersion of power in the international system uh, flows outward. And um, so, in effect, we acquired this geopolitical position, doubled the size of NATO, expanded its responsibilities. Uh, inserted ourselves very greatly into the greater Middle East, uh, did the same elsewhere in the world, at a time when the United States enjoyed a kind of uncontested uh, supremacy in, in military power uh, in an age that was very much unipolar. We have to maintain that position uh, in an age of increasing multipolarity in which the demands on the national budget are, uh, are increasing. And, you know, the only way to reconcile that is to put it on the national credit card. Uh, the public won't pay for it if they're actually confronted with the actual costs, say, at the gas pump to pay for these wars. And I think that's a, f a form of, uh, of financing that is uh, simply unsustainable if you, if you project it out over a decade or more. It violates what Eisenhower called the great equation, you know, the need to bring our economic well-being and our economic prosperity into some kind of reasonable relationship to our security requirements. Now, I think the remedy, this is my sixth point, the remedy for this state of affairs is not a, a new isolationism, it's a new internationalism. 
It's a different way of conceiving of America's role in the world and of engaging uh, with that world. Uh, now, there's one set of problems, such as climate change or what's happening to the world's oceans, um, the danger of pandemics, that sort of thing, which, in my view, require international collaboration, national exertion to deal with. You know, it's remarkable that the Trump administration has just zero interest in those forms of preparedness. The only kind of preparedness it's interested in is that of the military kind. But I think we do need a new internationalism that takes those issues seriously. But more particularly, we need a new internationalism that's based on the old internationalism, the internationalism of the UN Charter, which is founded upon the sovereignty of states, which is founded upon those norms that Wilson articulated in his great defense on behalf of the League of Nations, uh, that we should observe those norms, not commit aggression, not interfere in the territorial integrity of neighbors, uh, seems, uh, would have seemed to him uh, self-evident. I think that it's also self-evident to me in the sense that it seems to me to be very much in our interest to adhere to those norms. Um, and, uh, but we haven't. So, but I don't think that a, uh, a reorientation of the American military policy uh, elsewhere uh, in the rest of the world requires the abandonment of our alliances. We can have a different relationship with Europe in which Europe rightly takes responsibility for its own conventional defense, in which the United States is the reserve force, not the frontline force. Uh, we have particular responsibilities, I think, with regard to nuclear weapons, and I try to spell out in the book uh, what those are, which makes it very difficult to uh, commence a complete withdrawal from the world. Uh, but I think the big thing is to reconsider alliances simply as a form of negative association that are directed against external enemies. I think the real key of a new internationalism is to seek a new detente or relaxation of tensions with our adversaries, that is with Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Happy to discuss the parameters of that in the Q&A. But that's what I mean by new internationalism. Now, finally, a word on Trump. I never really uh, bought the image of Trump as a uh, non-interventionist. Uh, I mean, he always seemed to me, and I said so in the book, which was, you know, went to press over a year ago, uh, that he was a militarist seeking his opportunity. Um, he uh, has a kind of infatuation with the military and with the use of force that, um, uh, that makes him, I think, see war as a possible source of accolades to himself War is not simply an instrument of policy, but a means for the distribution of benefits to supporters, of hosannas to uh, himself, uh, that makes him a dangerous figure. And I find it incredible that under those circumstances, you know, the main complaint of the Democratic opposition is that he's insufficiently hawkish towards Russia. Um, you know, the central idea of the liberal world order uh, under past presidents was that you couldn't have a liberal world order without having hostile relations with Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. And Trump sees that bid and raises it, I think, in most cases. You know, the idea that he's trying to be sweet to Russia is just belied by the entirety 
of the administration's record. I mean, would you appoint John Bolton if that was your objective? No, of course not. Um, so, you know, the Democrats have been running from a governism and Carterism for so long <laughs> that they've ended up in a place not too far from Boltonism. And uh, we need a peace party in this country. Uh, and, and someone's got to provide it. There are voices in both parties that could provide it. Um, but unfortunately, it's very difficult to put that together. And uh, you know, one wonders why that is the case. Uh, I mean, it, it seems to me that the court, that is the Washington establishment, is very much at odds with the country with regard to these uses of military force and that there's a majority of the public that would be inclined to you know, very much resist uh, the expense of militarism. It's very skeptical about the use of force, and yet politically they seem to have almost no salience. And I think the reason for that is that you know, they're divided on all of these other issues. They're divided on the culture wars and on economic policy and such. And so their, their voice tends to kind of get washed out in the public debates. And uh, I don't know really how to overcome that uh, problem, but I think it needs to be overcome. And I think that both liberals and conservatives need to think about ways of reaching across the aisle, overcoming some of these other differences in order to focus on the formation of uh, a political party dedicated to peace. Uh, so, as I say, that's a, uh, a long shot. Uh, politically, the remedy seems very remote, but uh, philosophically, uh, you know, what we need to do, I think, uh, is uh, recover some old maxims. Uh, those are the maxims of the American founders. Absolute power is a dangerous thing, must be checked and balanced. Observing the law of nature and of nations, conceding reach, right, equal rights to all is the best policy. National independence is a good, one that we seek and wish others to enjoy. It can only be secured through union. Liberty is not achieved at the point of a sword and in spirit is inimical to the war system. Peace is the true policy of this republic. Thank you. Thank you, John, and thanks to Cato for inviting me back. We have had a spate of books and articles recently raising the alarm about the dangers to democracy worldwide, to the American political system in general, and specifically to America's central political value, namely liberty. So it is novel, indeed I would say refreshing, to come across a book such as David's that does not assign principal responsibility for this danger to Donald Trump. <laughs> indeed, it suggests, or at least can be read, David's concluding remarks to the contrary notwithstanding, that some of Mr. Trump's ideas suggestions or what he seems to specialize in, random thoughts, 
might actually contribute to the salvation of the American Republic. But as you have heard, David's book is not about Donald Trump or really about American domestic politics. Rather, it is an attack on the main lines of American foreign policy as it has been practiced for the better part of a century. David believes, as he has said, that this foreign policy has gone badly and dangerously wrong. Now, criticism of foreign policy in the United States is not rare. In fact, such criticism is something of a cottage industry in the city where we are meeting. But most of the criticism is, to borrow a phrase from football, between the 40-yard lines. That is, it, it takes place and is aimed at the margins of American foreign policy, or at least not at the core. Democrats and Republicans disagree, sometimes sharply, on a number of not insignificant issues, but they generally agree on the basic proposition that the United States should play a major, indeed the leading, role in the world. And this, in practice, means that the United States should maintain far-flung systems of alliances and a significant military presence around the world, as it has since World War II. David, as you have heard, writes to dispute that assumption. His book, therefore, belongs to a school of thought that is underrepresented in policy circles, but well represented here at Cato. This school of thought has been given a variety of different names. Academic realism, offshore balancing, restraint, retrenchment, minimalism, as distinct from the maximalism that is now practiced. Now, as David has noted at the end of his remarks, this school of thought is not particularly influential in policy circles, but it is important because it offers, unlike most of the discussion of American foreign policy in Washington, a full-fledged alternative to the current foreign policy. If adopted, it would lead to a different American role in the world, and therefore, given the enormous American influence therein, to a different world. As such, this point of view deserves serious consideration, and that is the purpose of my remarks. I begin by saying that the argument that American foreign policy has gone badly off track in the last 25 years, in the post-Cold War era, has much to be said for it. And I myself have said a good deal to that effect in my most recent book, which John was kind enough to mention, entitled Mission Failure, which I had the honor of discussing with John as the chair, as he noted, two years ago in this very auditorium. The argument there was and is that the United States went wrong in the post-Cold War era by embarking on missions to transform the domestic politics and economics of distant and not particularly important countries. 
These are missions that failed and, as I argue, were more or less destined to fail. But I also argue, although it was not a major theme of the book, that these post-Cold War missions distracted the United States from the main purpose of American foreign policy, namely to uphold the liberal international order that the United States was instrumental in establishing, preserving, and expanding in the decades after World War II. David does not believe in this older, broader mission. He asserts in the first place that the liberal world order has not been all that liberal or orderly, and he gives some examples. My response to this argument is to invoke Captain Renault, the French Vichy police uh, chief in Casablanca in the movie of that name, who pronounces himself shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on here in Humphrey Bogart's cafe dedicated to that activity. And after these remarks, as you, as you will remember, one of Humphrey Bogart's employees walks up to him, hands him some money, and says, you're winning, sir. It is similarly shocking, that is to say not shocking, to discover that the American-supported order at times and in places has been less than perfectly liberal and less than entirely orderly and to discover that the United States has sometimes been guilty of what the political theorist Judith Schlar called the ordinary vice of hypocrisy. Both are certainly true, but I think the important question is whether the imperfect liberal international order represents a substantial improvement on the alternatives to it, and whether, if so, an expansive American role is necessary to sustain that order. Now, the post-World War II order was certainly better than the order in the decades immediately preceding it, the 1930s and 1940s. But those low, dishonest, and bloody decades were a long time ago. Times have changed. Past performance, as the saying goes, is no guarantee of future results. And David does not believe that an American role is now warranted, at least not the role that the United States has played and continues to play. He argues that the role the United States has played in supporting the global economy is unnecessary. Now, it is something of a truism that all markets of whatever scope require a secure framework, which is ordinarily provided by government, formal or informal, with powers of coercion, so as, among other things, to enforce contracts. David dissents. He argues that international commerce is so well established and so obviously beneficial that it does not require such a supporting platform. And I quote from page 131, the globalized trading system can thus stand on its own two feet, underpinned not by military force but by a principle greater than force that is, the intense desire of both developed and underdeveloped countries to join in this system 
and partake of the benefits that it offers. Well, this is, to me, to put it mildly, an interesting assertion. And even more interesting is what I take to be the implication. If commerce between and among sovereign states does not require credible threat to resort to force when violations occur, then such a threat is surely even less necessary for commerce within sovereign states. Commerce, which is more intense, more common, more lucrative, and takes place between and among parties where trust is far higher. And if that is true, it becomes an argument for dispensing with government altogether in the economic sphere, an argument made early in the last century, but not since then, as far as I'm aware, by anarchists. Even in the libertarian Cato Institute, whose publications I follow with interest, I have not come across this argument. Now, uh, American military power is employed for security purposes as well, to deter aggression and to keep the peace. And David is against the deployment of, of American military power for that purpose as well. He also argues, or at least suggests, that it's unnecessary, that the use of force for conquest or any kind of aggression is now obsolete. It doesn't pay. It's not in the repertoire of 21st century countries. And he says on page 156, the formidable barriers to dominion faced by even great powers show that the world has, be world has become unconquerable in the phrase of the late Jonathan Shell. This you will recognize as a version of the pre-World War I argument that war had become impossible. That argument proved untrue then, but it might be true now. After all, times have changed. But David has another reason for opposing the American global military role. He argues in the book and has reiterated in his remarks that that role is provocative, that it is responsible for creating conflict via the machinations of the military-industrial complex and the American quest for universal dominion reminiscent of the Roman Empire. The American military industrial and security complex needs enemies and therefore creates them. David applies this analysis to the three countries of greatest current concern to American security policy. Russia, China, and Iran have all been provoked by the United States. What the United States government regards as aggressive, in fact, are defensive measures to defend legitimate national interests. Now, I find this analysis deeply unpersuasive. My skepticism is due partly to David's treatment of specific episodes, in particular, the Russian assault on Ukraine and the Iranian nuclear weapons program. To discuss these episodes, however, would require too much detail and would get us into assessments of the reliability of the sources that David cites. Rather, I would make some general points. 
First, all three of these powers employ force beyond their borders without being directly attacked. All three claim territory outside their recognized borders. Russia, the Crimea, and the Donbas in eastern Ukraine, China, all of the Western Pacific. Iran is a slightly different case. It has used force to install and reinforce clients in other countries, and therefore, it seems to me, all three persistently and at present violate the basic international law of non-aggression in which David sets great store. Second, David also sets great store by the concomitant principle of self-determination. But strictly speaking, these three regimes don't believe in it and don't practice it either. They don't want other countries to determine how they are governed, and they don't want the people they actually govern to determine their own governments either, and they act to prevent this. So these are hardly... Uh, custodians of basic international law. Third, David suggests that an aggressive Russia, an aggressive China, and an aggressive Iran are figments of America's fevered imagination. But it is a fact that other countries in Europe, other countries in East Asia, other countries in the Middle East also regard these countries as aggressive and threatening. So if there's a fever, it must be pretty widespread. And they, of course, want a more, not less, robust American military presence. Now, in the face of this, it is certainly plausible to argue, and this is a basic argument that Cato, uh, Chris Preble, and his colleagues have been making for some time, and David seems to agree with it, that the burden of coping with revisionist powers should fall far more heavily on countries that are most directly threatened by them as the United States is not. For historical reasons, the United States led the coalitions practicing containment in Europe and East Asia after 1945. But it may be argued and has been argued persistently and eloquently from this institution that uh, in the changed circumstances of the 21st century, the American role is no longer necessary or appropriate. And as I say, that seems to me to be a fair point. Of course, to transfer the burden of containment, to transfer these responsibilities, from the United States to regional countries does run two risks. One is that the other countries will not do enough to deter the revisionists. This is a familiar collective goods problem, sometimes called the underprovision of public goods. The second danger is that the transfer of responsibility in these regions would ultimately require the acquisition of nuclear weapons by Germany by Japan, and by a whole host of not necessarily stable countries in the Middle East. If, however, you are willing to run these risks, and my reading of uh, publications from Cato is that Cato analysts are willing to run those risks, uh, then it is plausible, I think, to argue for American withdrawal, or at least retrenchment. But I do not think it can be argued that withdrawal would make Russia 
China and Iran solid and peaceful citizens of their regions and of the world. Now, David believes that there is yet another reason the United States should withdraw from its maximal global role, and that is the deleterious impact of this role at home. And he cites in the book, as he did in his presentation, two kinds of costs. One type is economic. He decries the economic and fiscal consequences of current American foreign policy. The United States has, beyond doubt, a large and growing debt to which defense spending certainly contributes. Of course, by definition, all federal spending contributes to the deficit, and by far the largest expenditures of the American federal government are not for the Pentagon, but for our major entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. Butter is now far more expensive than guns. It has been aptly said that the United States, or at least the United States government, has become a large insurance company which dabbles in foreign policy. So cutting defense won't solve the deficit problem. The second cost that David cites is the erosion of liberty at home, as many founders feared would be, that is, founders of the United States, feared would be the effect of an active, militarized foreign policy. He quotes extensively from early American statesmen to this effect. I must say uh, that I'm not persuaded that the founders, or at least all of the founders, if they were alive today in radically different circumstances, would be opponents of current American foreign policy, but that's uh, imponderable and uh, a side issue. Uh, nonetheless, uh, David cites the erosion of liberty at home as a cost of current American foreign policy, and I don't find this argument persuasive either for three reasons. First, it seems to me that it is beyond doubt that the growth of the national security state in the decades since World War II coincides with the expansion, not the contraction, of liberty in the United States. In myriad ways, Americans are now freer than they were in 1945. Second, if we take a narrower temporal framework, since the emergency, in quotes, uh, uh, after the attacks of September 11th, we have, I think, seen a familiar pattern, pattern in evidence, at least since the Alien and Sedition Acts at the end of the 18th century. Encroachment on liberties occurs when there is a high fear of attack or subversion. But when those fears abate, as they always have, this is followed by the relaxation of restraints. Less danger, fewer restraints. Third, the new technologies of communication do pose novel risks. And it is surely the case now, as in the past, that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. However, I have the impression from my reading in this subject that here the American government has been relatively restrained. 
Its monitoring of electronic communication has been restricted to tracking the destination of the communication, not reading its contents, except in occasional cases where the FISA rules have been applied. Indeed, recent revelations suggest that the major threat to the liberty known as privacy comes not from the National Security Agency, but from Facebook. And to the extent that that is true, it seems to follow that a more, not less active government would serve the interests of liberty. So I come to my concluding point. Whatever the merits of David's arguments, and you can see how I stand on this question, I believe that history is moving in his direction. I believe that the dominant trend in American foreign policy is toward doing less abroad, toward international retrenchment. I believe that in the future, American foreign policy is going to look more like what he prefers than what I favor. This retrenchment will certainly not occur in systematic, orderly, well-planned fashion. It will be haphazard, inconsistent, and erratic. Nor will it take place because David's arguments or those of the estimable analysts here at Cato have persuaded the American public or that contrary arguments such as mine have failed to do so. The American public, including apparently the current president, seems to pay no attention whatsoever to such arguments. So much for the impact of the way we all spend our time. <laughs> Retrenchment, however, I think is likely because Americans are tired, feel economically pinched, are disappointed with the results of the military interventions in Afghan and Iraq, and not least are suspicious of the elites who design and implement America's globalist foreign policy. And that brings me to my final thought. To the extent that this retrenchment occurs, it means that those of us who believe that the minimal approach to American foreign policy that David has outlined will make the world and the United States less safe and less prosperous, must hope that we are wrong. Thank you. You want to respond? Sure. Um, well, thank you, Michael. Uh, that was a very uh, civil uh, and uh, powerful, though not entirely convincing critique. Uh, <laughs> I want to assure you that I'm not an anarchist. Uh, you know, my, my point with regard to the, uh, to take up one of his first points about U.S. naval power and the maintenance of the, of the uh, trading order, I mean, obviously, you know, there are threats from pirates and that sort of thing. Um, those threats need to be addressed. It's not evident that carrier task forces are the appropriate means of doing that off the coast of uh, Somalia, say. And it does seem to me that there's some basis for the proposition that those states that are most heavily engaged in commerce in a particular area of the world ought to take responsibility for protecting their shipping. That's not something that the United States Navy 
should be called upon to do all across the world, although it can cooperate with other navies in the maintenance of what is uh, in the common interest of all of the trading states. Uh, and of course, to make that point about naval power is not to say that the uh, economic order is not outside the realm of law. It's obviously very much inside the realm of law if a, a state expropriates a, uh, the holdings of foreign corporation, you know, it deprives itself of access to capital. Uh, it's uh, subject to various economic penalties that operate as a very effective means of enforcement. So a domestic legal order that enforces contracts uh, is also exists in the international realm and, and makes states very leery of doing anything that would ruin their reputation in terms of the violation of contracts or the expropriation of property. Uh, in that kind of order, uh, which I think very much exists, uh, gunboat diplomacy is passe. I mean, do we really think that in dealing with Venezuela, for example, that you know, we need to uh, bomb, threaten to bomb the capital if they uh, adopt some kind of uh, policy that's injurious to the American oil companies? Well, of course not. I mean, we see what's happening actually in Venezuela as a consequence of the policies that they have adopted with regard to the expropriation of uh, foreign assets, and it's ruined their oil industry. Uh, and those, those penalties are, in a sense, uh, you know, are ubiquitous in the... Uh, in the common world. I think, you know, one thinks about the danger to the freedom of the seas and to, to shipping and that sort of thing and thinks about the prospect of some sort of world war on the model of the Second World War with German submarine warfare and such. You know, the one thing that might bring that about is a big showdown between the United States and China. And it seems to me that that likelihood is greatly increased if the United States uh, uh, continues with the policy of seeking military dominance in China's home waters. I think that's a policy that were China to do the same to us, we would very strongly object to, and uh, which doesn't secure our interests or the interests of, of the world. With regard to the, uh, the point about the unconquerable world, that expression from Jonathan Schell, um, I would say the following, that obviously conquest in certain uh, limited territories is a possibility. I think that by and large, most states realize that, that the conquest of resources is not a particularly effective means of gaining national wealth. Uh, when Trump said that you know, we should have seized the oil once we invaded Iraq, which was a bad thing to do, but having done it, you know, we should have taken the oil. You know, what did the world say? Well, the world laughed because it was stupid. And, and uh, you know, a, a totally uh, inefficacious means of assuring uh, energy security. Uh, so, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't preclude the uh, uh, wars of aggression, uh, wars of conquest. Uh, but it does preclude the kind of danger that existed in World War I and World War II where you had one single power threatening to dominate the continent of Europe. Yeah, I do think that that is out of the question, that Russia with 11% of the GDP of the 
European Union has no desire, no interest to, uh, to do something like that. And I think that's true of China as well. What would China do with Vietnam's population? Uh, spend far more in resources keeping it down, uh, re resisting rebellions than any kind of potential profit that it might gain from that. So the point being that the great interest to which ideas of collective security were uh, aligned in the, uh, in, in the 20th century, that is the prevention of the domination of the resources of Eurasia by a single world power, yeah, I think that that's out of the question today. And uh, that we shouldn't devote ourselves to protecting that or, or, or trying to prevent that from happening. I do think, yes, uh, ultimately the difference between uh, Michael and myself, you know, really does rest upon the analysis of our adversaries and what they're about. I mean, that really is the core argument over American foreign policy. And uh, I know that my recommendation to, you know, put ourselves in the shoes of these other powers and to try to see these things as, as they do uh, does not, you know, go down well in Washington's climate. But that really is the rule of ethics. That's what you're supposed to do. And these states do have security problems, and they do have a right to self-defense. That's the fundamental rule of the law of nature, that everyone has that right in an equal proportion. And if once you start insisting that your right is far superior to that of others, and you don't have to take account of their right to protect themselves, you know, you state a formula that leads to war. Um, it's true that uh, all of the states on Russia's periphery harbor um, kind of intense historical memories uh, and antagonism towards Russia. And, uh, you know, and the Russians <laughs> need to pay attention to that. Uh, that does, that is meaningful. But on the other hand, you know, I must say, uh, if they really fear Russia so much, you know, why do they spend one to 2% of their GDP on defense? I mean, why is that disproportion uh, between US military spending and their military spending so manifest? And it is manifest. There's a lot of things that they could do by way of territorial defense uh, that would uh, frustrate any kind of Russian military move. And I, I really think that it's unfair to point to what the Russians did in Crimea uh, as, a, uh, as an indication of how wickedly aggressive they are. I mean, let's remember that Crimea was part of Russia for 200 years. Uh, the settlement that led to the dissolution of the Soviet uh, Union, the Soviet Empire, then the Soviet Union, uh, created a Ukraine in which there was a, uh, a Russophilic East and a Russophobic West. Um, that was a very delicate arrangement. Russia had certain rights in uh, the Crimea and its naval base at Sebastopol. And, uh, you know, the challenge of Western diplomacy under those circumstances was to try to maintain that delicate balance. On the part of the United States, that meant an effort to take into consideration the fact that that was a bitterly divided country with very closely contested elections. And what did we do? Well, in the name of democracy, we have violated the first rule of democratic constitutionalism and said this government that we found abhorrent was to be changed by a street mob. Not an election, but by 500,000 people gathering in the streets of Kiev. And we called that democracy. 
Well, it's not democracy. I mean, the first rule of democratic constitutionalism is that you change power through elections, and the failure to do that uh, almost inevitably resulted in Ukraine in a civil war. I think it would result in a civil war here. I mean, if three million people gathered in Washington, refused to, to leave, uh, brought in friendly snipers to provoke incidents, succeeded in driving the president out of the White House, and installing a new order, yeah, you would have a civil war in this country. It follows from that. I mean, you give those sorts of policies, give the extremists the vote, in effect. Give a minority the direction of the country. Ignore the voices of the little old ladies and the pensioners who stay at home and don't go out in the street. They have a right to determine the future of the country, too. So that intervention which Russia conducted in Crimea uh, you know, was a response also to the illegal intervention that the United States had conducted in abetting uh, that transfer of power in Ukraine. And I think it was a great mistake and has turned out to be very prejudicial to the people of Ukraine themselves who you know, have suffered a 50% decline in their gross domestic product since the Madan Revolution of 2014. Uh, yeah, defense, only a minor part of the budget, Social Security and Medicare. We make a point about that. You know, people often say that uh, Social Security is the big drain, but uh, you all will know that the gross domestic debt of the United States is $21 trillion. The debt held by the public is something like $16 trillion. That's a $5 trillion deficit. Where is that $5 trillion? Well, it's held mostly by the Social Security Trust Fund. So in fact, we did, hold, we did put money in reserve to pay for Social Security. We didn't put enough. And you know, there is going to be, in, uh, as those reserves are drawn down, and as the baby boomers retire, a big fiscal tsunami staring us in the face. But that's not the current question. Actually, you know, the government didn't borrow as much as the nominal budget figures indicated. You know, when we ran a $600 billion deficit in the Bush years, Social Security was actually, you know, buying up about half of that or 40% of that debt. And uh, that's changing now. And those military expenditures at some five to six percent of GDP are very meaningful. They're especially meaningful on a comparative basis. Uh, I, I mean, when Germany, um, with its economic surplus, invests in the education of its youth, or you know, builds transportation infrastructure, it has the funds to do that. But because we spend so much on our military establishment, that economic surplus, which inevitably is limited, uh, goes into investments which are fundamentally unproductive from the standpoint of the economy. So yeah, we've got a problem with Medicare and Medicaid. We've got a problem with Social Security. Uh, but those problems are made much worse by the fact that we have such a, uh, such a large defense budget, and uh, which is so much larger than that of our, um, of our competitors. Um, well, I don't know if that entirely covers the ground, but I'll uh, 
stop there and allow people to ask questions, and we can continue with uh, the discussion. Okay, um, we've uh, got really a quite good clash of opinion on this and a good sharpening of the debate that's going on there. Um, I'd like to open this up for questions, and the first person I call upon is me, uh, which is the prerogative of the chair. And it, it basically put together, asked, asked David basically about a third kind of perspective, which is neither his nor Michael's. Uh, and it basically goes around the idea of uh, empire. Uh, the, which is in David's book extensively and also in the subtitle. And the question is, is this really an American empire at all? And it seems to me another possibility of looking at American foreign policy, particularly since the end of the Cold War, is sort of vast proclamation and sort of half-vast execution. Um, and I think that's basically what's happened overall with one major outlier, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, if you look at most of the policies of the 1930s, 19, uh, 1990s, uh, they were sort of, we got to help out these guys in Somalia, 20 of our guys get killed, so we're out of there. Then genocide takes place next door in Rwanda, and we won't do anything, in fact, to keep people from going in at all. Doesn't sound like an empire in many respects. Uh, the Rwandan genocide is finally solved, not by the United States or France or anybody else, but by a, uh, a fairly competent uh, Tutsi army. Uh, we have to worry about in Bosnia, hand-wringing, hand-wringing, hand-wringing. Uh, and then troops are finally sent in, but only after the war is safely over and they get out or they fade away as fast as they can. In the case of Kosovo, another case of a lot of outrage when uh, Madeleine Albright talked about we are the indispensable nation. Um, and uh, basically the war had to be, was uh, fought entirely from the air. Um, none of those sound like very ambitious things. The most fatuous thing I think anybody's ever said, uh, I would attribute to uh, worse than Obama, uh, worse than uh, Trump is, is Obama's statement, we are the one indispensable nation, following up on Madeleine Albright, basically implying that all other countries are obviously dispensable. Um, in, the 20th century, in the 21st century, that changed somewhat, uh, not because the United States was, was uh, chasing after empire, because, but because of 9-11. The United States was attacked, and I've written about 300 books, it seems, arguing that we've massively exaggerated the threat that terrorism presents, but that doesn't stop the fact that people are terrified, and we're terrified of it. And so that led to uh, a screwball war in Afghanistan uh, that was probably not necessary, and an even uh, a screwier one in, 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 uh, in uh, uh, Iraq. Uh, in both those cases, the United States have been trying to figure out how to get out of those stupid things, not with a great deal of effectiveness, particularly in the case of Afghanistan, which is uh, scheduled to go on until everybody's grandchildren in this room are dead. Um, the, and and even, in, even in this century, when other things came up, they've been basically this, this uh, vast proclamation with uh, half-assed execution. One would be essentially Libya. The United States was snookered into it more or less by the British and the French. Um, and uh, then uh, did some bombing, and then the, the whole thing went in down the tubes, and instead of making it into an empire in any sense, basically faded away. And the other thing is what's happening in Syria. Um, the, uh, what you've seen recently is a perfect example. We've had mission accomplished, says the president, and what we've done is bomb a few places in Syria, uh, very limitedly, uh, because we prefer Assad to kill people with bullets and shrapnel rather than with chemical weapons. Uh, and so consequently, and then we're not going to do any more. That's a really interesting case of that, which basically ends up, of course, basically prolonging that disastrous war. So I'd like to ask then, uh, David, if you would talk about the 
concept, particularly of empire, which is a little bit vague in the book, and he covered it somewhat, somewhat briefly here, as to say, uh, when you use words like empire and dominance, what do you mean? What, what, what seems to be going on? Uh, well, I do have a, a rather extensive discussion of that in the book, and I distinguish between empire and uh, an old term of art in the history of the European state system called universal empire. Empire is ruling other, over other peoples without their consent. Universal empire is ruling over the society of states without its consent. And I point to you know, five features of the American position that uh, place it in the line of those who seek to dominate the state system, one of which is doctrines of US military superiority, doctrine of preventive war, the objective of the end of tyranny, that is to uh, make the uh, regimes of the state conform to a single standard. Uh, fourth, the uh, license to use force without, uh, without the sanction of law, whether that of the Security Council, the Congress, uh, or um, allies. And fifth, the creation of this universal panopticon. You know, it's obvious that the United States devotes far more resources to the surveillance state than anybody else does. I think that those five things together constitute a claim to, to domination over the state system and uh, would be recognized by those who you know, thought about how a society of states should operate as being you know, equivalent to that claim to universal empire. Now, what John says is perfectly correct. I mean, the, 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 the manifest feature of the American position in the world is the repeated disutilities of its uses of force. Uh, we don't control anything. Um, we're very good at breaking things. And uh, there have been a lot of states that have been broken under the imprint of American arms, particularly in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, and Libya. But uh, we're miserable at creating things, about you know, reconstructing a devastated order. We don't know how to do that. Don't seem to care that it's an important you know, aspect of any use of force, that it must look to the peace to follow, which has always been a criterion in the consideration of this subject uh, of, of the justice of war in the past. So yes, that term empire is a, uh, is a devilish one. And there are aspects of the, uh, of the American position which, uh, for which that doesn't apply in the least. Uh, uh, and where the claim to you know, rule over other peoples is basically not what the United States is about. But it matters when one state says, in contravention to one of the basic norms of the old European system, uh, that we will not accept a balance of power. We're not after an equilibrium of power. We're after American US military supremacy. And when that doctrine is paired with uh, 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 ideas of the use of force, uh, which allow for preventive war, which allow for unilateral exercises of power in contravention to law uh, and, and the other associated aspects of the American position. And I think that that, that is redolent of, those, uh, of the claim to universal empire. And I think it condemnable for that reason. Do I add something briefly? Okay. Um, 
this uh, debate is getting wider, and I think in a very, very good sense, I let it run over a little bit longer. Uh, let me remind you, we'll have questions now, and also this, play, this, uh, this ends with a lunch upstairs in which you can attack anybody, including any, any of the speakers, um, so, <laughs> while munching on a sandwich. Uh, so who could ask for more? Okay, could we have, there's a couple questions over here. Could you get on the inside, maybe one, two, uh, do both of them sequentially. Um, but when, even conceding that the United States has rarely been a howling success in reconstructing other societies once we've invaded their countries, which nation has a better record than the United States in this thankless effort? I think probably both of you could. Uh, well, uh, I suppose you could argue that the British Empire has a certainly a mixed record, but did bring democracy and free markets to some of the places it ruled, although it wasn't trying to do that particularly. But uh, in general, uh, I agree with what I think is the premise of your question, and that is that uh, the kind of reconstruction that the United States attempted in Bosnia, Somalia, Haiti, Afghanistan, uh, and Iraq simply can't be done from the outside. It has to be done from the inside, and it takes a generation or more. So, so that is mission impossible, in my view. Well, yeah, there, there aren't really any good contemporary examples <laughs> because no one else has really tried to do that. And Even so the as, Romans had their problems. Yeah, as Michael suggests, you really do have to look to the great age of imperialism and uh, I, I mean, I, I do think that there is a contrast between the British record and the American record. And I think that the, the Brit British record was more distinguished by the economy of force. Uh, they were more adept at the uh, use of, uh, you know, kind of non-military means to establish their rule. That's not to say that they didn't use the military, but the... Um, I think the United States has a kind of idea of the use of force that really isn't keyed to that problem that you're addressing of, of reconstruction. We kind of had it in our mind that because of what happened after 1945 in Japan and Germany, which was a marvelously successful reconstruction and for which the United States deserves a great deal of credit, uh, and one of the proudest moments in the history of American diplomacy because of its constructive uses of, of, the, uh, uh, of the kind of order that it created in those regions in the aftermath. I find that to be lamentably lacking in all of our recent interventions. I don't think we really have a clear idea of what we're trying to do by way of reconstruction, and I don't think that we even really try to do it. It's secondary. What's primary is using force, defeating the adversary. That is what we devote our efforts to, and we think that the rest of it will kind of take care of itself, and it doesn't. What it's done is created these fields of uh, anarchy and large refugee problems that uh, are, are really kind of horrifying. Okay, the second question, and is anybody over here, maybe over in that corner, you can put in after this. 
Hello, uh, Evan Sankey, Johns Hopkins Sice, right here. Um, in, in your initial remarks, uh, Dr. Hendrickson, I, I think I heard you say that you, you still think the United States has a responsibility to maintain uh, its non-proliferation policies. And I think I heard you say that that means that we need to maintain our alliances, even if the alliances should be structurally somewhat different. I, I'm wondering how that comports with uh, the golden rule that you think should be at the center of our foreign policy. Uh, if we maintain our alliances to prevent them from developing nuclear weapons, that seems like a, a responsibility that is asymmetrical, that does not, that, that violates the golden rule, since no other country would do that. And in general, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to hear comments on uh, the issue of nuclear proliferation. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think we have to begin with the nuclear problem uh, and not have any mechanistic application of any rule uh, in, in thinking about it. I don't really take the point that it's a violation of, of the golden rule. I mean, we have to work out certain issues with, uh, with our allies that have been dependent upon us. And uh, certainly it is the case that, that with regard to NATO, uh, the American nuclear guarantee has has been important, and most particularly, it's been important because it's been our way of dealing with the German problem and with the fact that Germany doesn't really want to acquire nuclear weapons, and uh, were it to acquire that desire, would probably reawaken memories in its neighbors that would be uh, unsettling both to them and to the Germans and to us. So that poses a great difficulty. Now, what I propose in the book is that the, that the Europeans take primary responsibility for their conventional defense. They should be able to do that. That is their responsibility. But I also say that the United States should maintain its nuclear guarantee in this sense that it, if there were a use of nuclear weapons on the European continent by a hostile power, we would meet fire with fire. We would retain that commitment. And I think that we should retain that commitment on the Korean Peninsula as well. If North Korea uses nuclear weapons, we will use nuclear weapons against North Korea. But we renounce the idea that we are going to use nuclear weapons in response to any other threat, that our nuclear threat is for the purpose of caging that particular beast, not dealing with all the other problems in the world. And that's not U.S. military strategy today. We hold out the prospect of the first use of nuclear weapons in response to a, in response to a conventional attack. And I think that that's, uh, I don't think we should do that. I think that our policy should be devoted to minimizing the role of nuclear weapons in national strategy and basically only threatening their use in response to another such use by another power. Uh, you know, there's no easy solution to that problem. I do think that the United States has a strong interest in trying to prevent widespread nuclear proliferation. Uh, we, I don't think it solves any problem for the South Koreans and the Japanese to get nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, we need to look towards denuclearizing. And we have to kind of also remember that there's really, there is no political use to be 
gained or political benefit to be gained by the use of weapons of mass destruction. Someone who did that, and I'm talking about real weapons of mass destruction, uh, someone who did that would make themselves a pariah. It would really result in a situation in which I think, uh, you know, civilized states throughout the world would, would recognize that they were facing a regime that was their mortal enemy. And it does seem to me that uh, the nuclear powers of today uh, recognize that point. Uh, and it's, it's, it's frequently, you know, not recognized. That is, there's sometimes kind of the sense given in the way in which we discuss these issues that there's some kind of great political benefit that would be gained by blowing up a city. I don't believe that. I think that the, 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 the thing to be gained by blowing up a city is that you make yourself an enemy to the human race and an enemy to mankind and that all the states of the world under those circumstances would unite in whatever way they could to bring that power down. Yeah, uh, Pat Span, just myself, although I, uh, I guess since 76 I've been a swamp creature. The, um, Dr. Henry, I'm uh, a little interested in your opinion on the, um, the South China Sea, and I guess I can't remember the proper term, it's the nine-line treaty or whatever, and I, I can see within the next year or two toll booths going up on the South China Sea, and I wonder, do, do you consider that? You mentioned earlier that uh, you know our, our carrier groups are not needed, and that um, you know that Chinese have legitimate claims or whatever. And I guess I'm a little confused. Do you consider the, the Chinese putting up toll booths in the uh, South China Sea as legitimate, and that should not be confronted? Uh, I don't think it's legitimate. No, I also don't think that they're going to do that. I think that the Chinese island building campaign there is about building up their military power. They think that they should be the dominant military power in the South China Sea. And I think that similarly circumstanced, the United States would insist upon the same point. So you have to distinguish between the Chinese objection to uh, the mil American military presence in the South China Sea and their uh, respect or lack thereof for the principle of freedom of navigation. I think the Chinese are absolutely 100% behind the principle of freedom of navigation. They depend upon commerce. Their commerce is threatened by one power, which has the ability to shut it down in war, and that's the United States. So yeah, they worry about that. And I think that they would be, I think that if the deal that I can see, conceive, the negotiation that I can, conceive with China is that we say, look, we concede that you have military dominance there, just as we have military dominance in the Gulf of Mexico. We're not about challenging that. We also think that very clearly the littoral states uh, around the South China Sea, you know, have reasonable objection to your nine-dash line. So in exchange for us backing off on the military front, we expect you to make reasonable concessions to them with regard to the exploitation of undersea resources. The point being, China has primary responsibility in those waters for maintaining the principle of freedom of navigation. Now, Americans will say, oh no, that's intolerable. 
We can't have a situation in which China has primary responsibility for anything. But I think it's in China's interest to maintain that principle, and I think they would maintain that principle. And perhaps we'd be willing to, you know, uh, make adjustments with regard to the artificial islands they were, uh, they were building if we had made steps to back off from our military claims. At least I think that there would be an important negotiation to be had with them in that regard. Uh, the uh, Chinese territorial claims in the Western Pacific, especially the South China Sea, the so-called nine-dash line, has been declared illegal by the International Court of Justice, and the Chinese government announced that it would pay no attention to, to that declaration, so much for China's respect for the rule of law. Uh, I don't know on what basis you can assert that China believes in freedom of navigation. Uh, they, they have not been in a position thus far to shut down commerce in their part of the world but they've certainly claimed territorial waters, including around these uh, islands that they have built military uh, installations on that are, are also illegal, both for claiming any territorial waters at all and for the extent of the territorial waters. And they have claimed that uh, other countries need permission to pass through those waters from them. Uh, the United States does not accept that. The international community does not accept it. Other, other East Asian countries do not accept it. And therefore, the United States has conducted so-called freedom of navigation uh, operations uh, to, uh, to assert the principle of freedom of navigation that the Chinese uh, uh, oppose in those instances. Okay, one, one last, hopefully, brief question. Uh, so those of us who are part of the Washington Consensus sometimes read the Washington Post. And this morning there was an article that basically um, said that Donald Trump it does have isolationist tendencies, but he's constantly overruled by the people he's surrounded himself with. There are similar articles. Um, I mean, Obama won a, a Nobel Prize based on the great things he was going to do for peace. Um, George Bush was elected as the education president. Um, do, do you think that all of the basically all of the presidents since 1945, do they have sincerely held isolationist beliefs and are co-opted by the deep state or the Washington consensus, whatever you want to call it? Or do they have a change of heart? What do you think is behind that, I suppose? Well, uh, I would probably have to consider Trump as a case apart from any of the post-war presidents. I mean, the post-war presidents believed in the American role in the world. They weren't the captive of any kind of deep state. Uh, and besides, the deep state isn't really this secret conspiracy. It's a set of beliefs, a set of interests that are open uh, for the most part. Uh, Trump is, uh, yeah, like I say, a case apart. It's, he doesn't really have a, um, you know, a deeply reasoned conception of of things. I, I, I did read that story in the Post this morning, and just one comment about that. Um, you know, the thing that apparently decided Trump to decide to sell arms to Ukraine was, you know, making money. And I think that arms sales 
uh, really are about American foreign policy under Trump is increasingly about that. That is, instead of foreign policy objectives driving arms sales, it's the other way around. The tail is wagging the dog. And that's a very pernicious uh, development, I think, that you know we should look upon the sale of these means of destruction elsewhere in the world purely from a commercial standpoint, as the president seems to do. Okay, thanks uh, to you and to our speakers. The lunch is on the second floor up. Uh, follow the spiral staircase. There are also restrooms up there. Thank you very much. <laughs>